So with the start of Lent, we start our Lenten sermon series this morning, and we are calling this series The Wages of Sin. Throughout Scripture, God is described as a loving God, slow to anger and abounding in his steadfast love. And yet, there are also some scenes in Scripture where we get glimpses of just how awful our sin is and the wrath that it has earned from God. And through this series, what we are going to do is look at a couple of those instances in the Bible and see what it teaches us about our sin. And this morning, we are going to begin in Genesis chapter 19. Already in Genesis chapter 19, we have seen how the sin of Adam and Eve have caused them to be driven from God's presence in the garden. We have also already seen one of their sons murder another one of their sons in a quick act of just hatred and rebellion. We've seen the undoing of creation and the coming of the flood and God's destruction of what was made but redeeming Noah and his family and in many ways starting anew. And while we could look at those, this morning we're going to start by looking at the story of the destruction of the city of Sodom. The scene is introduced in actually chapter 18, verses 16 through 33, where God reveals to Abraham his plan. And there's a discussion about whether God will allow the righteous to be killed with the wicked. And then the answer being settled that if there are 10 righteous people, the city will be saved. We pick up the scene in chapter 19 with what ends up happening. So if you haven't found it yet, it's on page 16 of your pew Bibles, or of course, as you see, the words are behind me on the screen. The two angels that had visited with Abraham came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city... The men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not, yet, who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge? Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, 
Have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, the one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a, a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which if you see in your footnote, means little. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities. And all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we get to the end of our text in verses 27 and 28, I picture that scene of Abraham standing and looking toward the cities that he had been warned about. And when he looks that direction, all he sees is a great plume of smoke. It says in our text, like a furnace, I imagine it being very much like the scenes you see on TV of oil refineries just on fire and flames and smoke going up into the air. And it was an answer to the question he had wondered. Obviously, the city had been destroyed. Obviously, ten righteous people had not been found and the city was not spared. And now, as he looked and saw, I'm sure only one question remained. What about Lot? What happened to him? Did he get consumed with the city or did my nephew get away? And that's the question I want to help frame our text for this morning. What happened 
to Lot? In order to answer that question, we've got to back up quite a bit and kind of see where this whole scene sort of starts. In Genesis chapter 13, we discover that God has been blessing Abraham and his nephew Lot to the point where their, their flocks are growing and there's conflict between their two households. And so they decide to go in two different directions. There's plenty of space. Let's not step over each other's toes so much. And so Abraham allows Lot to choose. Where do you want to go I'll go the other direction. And what at the time seems almost like an innocuous choice, Lot chooses to take the Jordan Valley near some cities. In chapter 13, 12, we are told that Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. But then by the time we get to the next chapter, in chapter 14, verse 12, we learn that Lot was dwelling in Sodom. And by the time we get to chapter 19, the text we read for this morning, when we meet Lot, we see him sitting at the gate of Sodom, which means that he was sitting in a place of prominence. And it suggests that Lot is getting established here. And if that's not enough of a suggestion, what we find is that Lot has two daughters and he has pledged both of them to marry two citizens of this city. And so when we look at this story, we see Lot being drawn more and more, steadily getting settled in to Sodom. Lot is becoming a citizen of Sodom. But that's where the conflict comes in. When speaking with God about not destroying the righteous along with the wicked of Sodom, Abraham is surely thinking about Lot hoping that his presence would have made a positive impact in the city of people, and just by being there, God would spare the rest of the wicked. And what is often characterized as a, as a, a compromise, an argument, a, a debate between God and Abraham, it actually seems more of a discussion, learning of the character of God. How many righteous people would it need before God's grace would preserve this city? Could just a few people save and spare this community? And in fact, when Peter, much, much later, refers to these events in 2 Peter 2, he calls Lot righteous, someone who was tormented daily by the actions of this wicked city. But Lot knew what this city was like. And that's why as soon as he sees these two visitors, he insists strongly that they cannot stay in the city square, but must come to his house. Because if they stay there, they will be in trouble. It is too dangerous. But it was too late. They had been seen. And the character of the city reveals itself. I struggled a lot with this. Because I want to be cautious about the words and the language that I use in an audience with both old and young alike. And yet, I think we have to be honest and look and, and think seriously and not gloss over the depth of the sin that we see revealed here. The house of Lot is surrounded by the whole town that is emphasized and every one of them is hungry to abuse these men some commentaries they try to 
suggests that when Lot tries to assuage them with the author, offer of his daughters, that he's either being hyperbolic or, or that he's not really intending. I don't see that there's any way around that his offer is just as wicked. It's just an attempt to try to distract them or to turn them away. But that offer doesn't work, and quickly Lot, in his attempts to slow down the community, sees them turn against him. And they say, who's this guy who shows up out of nowhere and all of a sudden he wants to judge us? Kind of sounds familiar when we stand in the way of others. It gets to the point where Lot has to be snatched back into his house and the crowd is then struck blind. But notice that even that doesn't stop them. The text says, the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Even temporary blindness would not stop them. They gave all of their energy, tiring themselves, trying to get at these men. There is no restraint for them. Just acts as a confirmation that the city is lost. It is a city characterized by its lusts. There aren't ten righteous people. The city will be destroyed. And so the angels then get very clear. Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. The warning is clear. The punishment is coming. And the threat is real. If you don't get out of here, you too will get wrapped up in the consuming fire that is about to come. So what's going to happen? What will happen to Lot? Will he escape? Or will he be destroyed as well? And that question is real. Because right after that warning we see in verse 15, in verse 16 we are told... But he lingered. But he lingered. So that the men, these angels, had to seize him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. The Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside of the city. Even though he had been told to warn others and had tried, Lot himself was slow to leave to the point where he had to be grabbed and dragged outside of the city to begin him on the journey toward safety. And even then, when they get outside of the city, he gets further instruction, escape to the foothills. And Lot says, hey, thank you very much. For bringing me out here but that's too much can i go to that little city instead it's not a big one it's just a little city give me that mercy as well and in another act of mercy god says go get there and then i will destroy the rest of the city and that's when the destruction starts when they finally reach zoar now, I'm not a scientist, but I tried to do some research on burning sulfur, and I found some interesting tidbits. First of all, sulfur as a stone is flammable, especially if it gets ground up and put into a powder form, it becomes extremely flammable, which is why other translations call this brimstone, which literally means burning stone. And when it burns, sulfur combines with oxygen, which creates sulfur dioxide, 
a noxious and poisonous chemical. And when that chemical mixes with water, it becomes sulfuric acid, a component of acid rain. I'm going to quote one article directly that summed up pretty well what happens when sulfur burns and the danger it creates. It says, unfortunately, as human beings, our bodies are made up of water. And our lungs, airways, and eyes are all sites where sulfur dioxide can quickly become sulfuric acid. Furthermore, even our skin has moisture on it that could potentially react with the gas. Needless to say, this is extremely dangerous. And then I add to that, only hearing that, it must also be extremely agonizing. That as the sulfur dioxide comes in contact with your eyes and gets into your lungs and literally starts to burn you from the inside out is, is a painful and awful way to die. But again, having left the city and having been warned to not look back and that there is a threat to them, we find out that Lot's wife does look back. She too apparently struggled to leave the city and lost her life in turning back. And it's not so much that she pointed her eyes in the wrong direction, but the suggestion is that she looked back to that city because there was a part of her heart that stayed there. When Jesus speaks of the ends of time, he refers to this. In Luke 17, 28-32, he says, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, there were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed? On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. And then he says, remember Lot's wife. Well, that's where I want to start to apply this text for us. What happened to Lot? And remember Lot's wife. I go again to that scene of Abraham standing there, looking over the valley, seeing the fire and the smoke, and asking that question. Did Lot escape, or did he get consumed? And again, that question was a very viable question because it's very likely that Abraham understood the pull to Lot's heart that Sodom was starting to have. That he was becoming a citizen of Sodom. And it's that same pull that our hearts often feel toward the things of this world. I worry sometimes that when we hear the story of Sodom and Gomorrah that we can kind of distance ourselves from this tragedy. We think that it's talking about those people that engage in that kind of sinful stuff, things that we would never think of or do, and therefore, yes, they were worthy of destruction, but, but not us so much. But as soon as we say that, we have to bear a couple of very important things in mind. One of which is the fact that when Lot was living in Sodom, the Ten Commandments hadn't yet been given to anybody. And so there was no 
point where Lot could say, look, do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Don't covet things that don't belong to you. There was no book of Leviticus that had yet been written. In many ways, you could say the law had not yet been revealed and yet anyone who read what was happening in this city would clearly know that what was going on there was wrong, it was wicked, and it was evil in rebellion against God. It's not even necessarily the types of sins that these people were committing as much as it was an active choice to rebel against the creator God in his majesty. And the people knew. And so in some ways, we're worse off. You know the Ten Commandments. You have the Bible that has clearly told you that these are the things you are to do and these are the things that you are not to do. And yet, even in knowing, you continue to sin. We've been warned, as it says in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And when we hear that list... I'm sure all of us can say, guilty. The quote from Jesus in Luke 17 was the reminder that this world is fading. So much of what people give themselves to, we know, will go nowhere. That's why he says in the text we're looking at for our family visitations, do not be conformed to the, the pattern of this world. And yet... When we hear those warnings, this world is fading, sin will lead you nowhere except toward destruction. Do we heed those warnings? Or do we, like Lot, linger? Are we citizens of this earth? Or are we citizens of heaven? As I said from the start, Sodom certainly isn't the first act of God pouring out his wrath in a clear and swift way. And yet, the reason why I started our sermon series here is because throughout Scripture, Sodom and Gomorrah becomes an example, a warning to the rest of us. That this is what our sins deserve. This is what happens when you give yourself over to citizenship in this wicked world. This is what happens when sin is allowed to run amok. It is destructive to you. It is destructive to society in this life. And it leads toward condemnation in the life to come. In many ways, many, most commentaries believe that's why hell itself is described like burning sulfur why 2 Peter 2 in the text I had referred to either earlier warns us and it's why Jesus himself said remember Lot's life I'm sorry Lot's wife this world has a pull on us and yet far too often we flirt with temptations we get the invitation to the party 
And we know exactly what's going to happen when we get there and who's going to be there and how that's going to draw us. And yet, instead of fleeing from that, we go ahead and we go. And what we knew would happen, happens. We put ourselves in places online and and we see the thumbnails and we know that it's just there to entice us, to appeal to our fleshly desires. And yet, in seeing that, instead of flipping away or, or, or fleeing, we go ahead and click the link. We heard last week that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and yet we give so much of ourselves to acquiring it and treating money as if it would be our salvation. And I could go on and on. The pull of this earth is strong. And the text warns, as we did last week, flee, flee from those temptations. Run away from that draw because it will not satisfy. It will not work. It only leads to destruction. Has the fading world grabbed too much of your hearts that we struggle to give up the things that are not from God? In fact, in many reasons, that's exactly why a lot of people give things up for Lent. To say, what if this world has too much control over me? What is guiding me too much? What is too hard for me to give up? And if it's too much, if it's too hard, maybe that's an evidence that this is too much pull, too much control on your life, and it's drawing you away from God. But thanks be to God that there is a pathway out and that his grace is available to us. As Lot was literally grabbed and dragged outside of the city and then told to run. That's exactly how God acts to us. He comes even when we're not willing or ready to give up and he grabs us and he drags us to the place of security, which is the cross. That is where Christ came to this earth where he suffered not only throughout his life, but especially as his hands were nailed to that cross along with his feet, and he died a terrible, awful, excruciating death as the wrath of God was poured out on him. And yet that sacrifice that he willfully offered in all of the pain and agony it brought to him was our salvation. The promise is that when we look to him in faith and we turn our lives over to him and we recognize that he is our sacrifice, then we are set free and we are sent on to a whole new different city, a whole new life, a way of serving our Lord in gratitude. And so as we start this sermon series, the question I want you to ask is where is your heart at? Are you a citizen of this earth or are you a citizen of heaven? Just as Abraham looked over the city or the valley and he saw the smoke flame and he wondered what happened to Lot. As we look over our world and all of the things that are going to burn up and fade away and have proven over and over again lead nowhere except to death. What's going to happen to you? 
Are you willing to step away, to flee, to run from those things that are so wrong, you know are wrong, but pull at your heart? Or are you going to linger? Are you going to stay? Are you going to look back? In the season of Lent, the invitation is to flee, to let go, to pursue your relationship with the Lord with all that you have and trust that though it might feel hard, his way is the best way because his way leads to salvation and life. And that is what he offers through his son. And so the invitation must go out again. In this world where you are pulled toward what is wrong, have you turned away from this wicked world and are you looking at Christ and seeking to live for him, letting go of anything that is going to hold you back? And if you want to know more about that, I will always say, speak to me or one of the elders that will greet you after the door. We want you to know that rescue, that hope given us in Christ. Well, together, let's pray as we ask these questions of ourselves. Father in heaven, as much as we should learn from the examples of others, we see in ourselves those who know and confess we have given too much of ourselves to this fading, wicked, passing world. Lord, we can think of times where though we knew we were doing wrong, we chose to do it anyway because that's where our hearts truly were. And I pray that as we examine the evidence and the truth of what happened to Sodom, may it remind all of us that this world is only temporary. It is fading. And that we, not, we should not linger, but we should leave everything that is not of you and cling to you. That's not something we can do on our own. And so we do cling to you. We ask that through the power of the memory of what you did for us on the cross would motivate us to serve you in gratitude. That with the ongoing presence of your Holy Spirit, you will guide and direct us and you will allow these words to come alive in our lives so that we live for you as citizens of your kingdom in everything that we do. Strengthen and equip us when we face difficult choices this week and especially in this season of Lent. May we flee from what is not of you and cling to the hope we have in Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.